Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here in our midst. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I have never... Not one time in my entire ministry career preached a sermon on Paul's letter to Philemon. I think there are two reasons for this, one more coincidental than the other. The coincidental reason is that the book of Philemon is really short and only appears in our lectionary rotation once every three years. We read the entire book this morning, apart from four concluding sentences that are basically just personal greetings from Paul. We read all of it this morning. It's only 25 verses long. It'll take seven or eight times longer to preach this sermon about Philemon than it took us to read Philemon just a few moments ago. And so coincidentally, every three years when Philemon comes up, it's one of the other readings that catches my attention. The second Less than coincidental reason I've never preached on it is that Philemon involves slavery. Specifically, it involves St. Paul sending a runaway slave back to his master. And as we'll see in a second, Paul doesn't tell Philemon, a fellow Christian who Paul himself converted, he doesn't tell him to wake up, to see the light, to obey Christ and set the slave Onesimus free. And that makes the book of Philemon, uh, along with a few other biblical passages about masters and slaves, at least potentially uncomfortable. Because it takes some time to unpack slavery as it appears in Scripture and to show that the Bible does not in any way condone chattel slavery with the Old Testament outlaws as man-stealing in Exodus 21. And we preachers are humans too wary of saying the wrong thing and being unclear. But the relationship of master and slave is there in the text. And so I think we need to deal with it. And as we do, I think we'll see that Paul is in fact opposing slavery, actually working to ultimately abolish it, and even in doing so, proclaiming good news to each and every one of us who are enslaved by sin, and ransomed by Christ. So, Philemon, what's going on, and what does it have to do with us and say to us in our incredibly different cultural context? Well, Philemon was a wealthy man in Colossae, which is the city to which the letter to the Colossians was written. He was at least wealthy enough to be the host for the church that was meeting in his house. Philemon had been brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by Paul, who is at the time of this writing himself in prison. And Paul is writing to Philemon because he has met 
one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, who has run away and likely stolen some things from Philemon when he went. And we can infer that because Paul says in the letter that Philemon can charge to his account anything that Onesimus owes. Now, this runaway slave has somehow come across Paul, even though Paul's in jail. And because Paul is Paul, now Paul has converted him to Christianity. So both Philemon and Onesimus owe their conversions to Paul. Not their salvation, of course, that is by Christ alone, but they have this thing in common now, this connection. They both heard the good news about Jesus from Paul's lips. So now Paul, presented with this runaway, law-breaking slave who has become a Christian, decides to send Onesimus back to Philemon, carrying the letter that we have before us this morning. And here's where we get the rub. And so before we talk about the good news in the passage, let's address the discomfort here. Paul does not take this opportunity to speak out against the institution of slavery. He doesn't agitate the Senate in Rome or the local proconsul or protest outside the neighborhood slave market. He doesn't, in the letter, demand that Philemon release Onesimus on Christian moral grounds. But Paul does do something here. He does not leave the issue unaddressed. Instead, I would argue that he addresses it in the most profound of ways. He reminds Philemon of the new world in which he now lives. A world in which Christ is king. And a world in which a master-slave relationship is ultimately impossible. Perhaps, Paul writes, this is the reason he, Onesimus, was separated from you for a while. So that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother. Maybe... Paul is saying, God is at work in this terrible situation. This slave stole from you and ran away, but maybe God is going to use it to give you back, not a slave, but a brother in Christ. Because that's what Onesimus is now. Remember Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither slave nor free. But what does that mean in this context? What kind of slavery is Paul thinking about? Because, you know, the phrase slavery in the Bible is a complicated one. There is the slavery of the Old Testament bounded by the law of God that had very little to do with the kind of slavery that once existed in America and still exists in many parts of the world today. Old Testament Israelite slavery was carefully ordered and much more like indentured servitude. There was no racial aspect to it. Slaves had rights. They could inherit from their masters and were to be set free in the year of the Jubilee. 
Now, that's not to say that all slave owners in the Old Testament were righteous men. Far from it. But it is to say that the word slave meant something very different to Jewish people living under the holy law of God than it does to our modern ear. Even in New Testament Christian worldview, the word slavery doesn't necessarily refer to a horrific estate. For instance, Paul calls us all slaves of Christ in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, having said all that, slavery in the Roman Empire in the time of the New Testament was a much different thing than what the law of God allowed. And much more like the abomination that was American chattel slavery. Now, a slave might possibly have a good master, but slaves did not have the rights under Roman law that they had under the law of God. And a runaway slave, like Onesimus, he could have been branded, tortured, even killed with legal impunity. So what is Paul doing here in Philemon, in which he sends Onesimus back into a slavery situation? Well, slavery was utterly ingrained in the culture of the Roman Empire, indeed, the entire ancient world, and trying to attack it with a loud public protest, scholars like N.T. Wright have argued, would have ultimately been futile, fighting worldly powers on their terms. So if Paul had attacked the institution, these scholars say, it would have made the plight of Christian slaves worse and contributed to the further marginalization of Christianity as a whole. In other words, slavery would have only gotten worse and kept going. So Paul doesn't fight slavery like a revolutionary. He doesn't agitate the Senate in Rome or the local proconsul or protest outside the neighborhood slave market. Instead, Paul fights slavery in a way that will actually work. It works in the first century to free Onesimus, and like leaven, working its way through a lump of dough, eventually works to bring down the entire institution of slavery in the Christian West through the work of people like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. and many, many others. And how it works, and what Paul does here, is he sets off an ideological bomb, shaking the entire worldview of these men and every new creation in Christ. Now, he argues, there is no such thing as slave and free. You are one in Christ Jesus. And in light of that, Slavery is doomed. So now let's turn from the issue of slavery to the nature of the bomb with which Paul would destroy it. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me, he tells Philemon. I showed you Christ, he's saying, and I showed Onesimus Christ. And we are all slaves to Christ, as he referred to himself in verse 1. This is a profound thing that Paul is asking Philemon to do. Remember, 
Paul is an apostle, and he is the man who brought Philemon to Christ. He's told Philemon in verse 8, I'm sure you heard it, that he wouldn't be embarrassed or hesitant to just command Philemon in this situation, to just tell him what to do. But he's going to leave it up to Philemon's will. Treat Onesimus, Paul says, like you would treat me. Now imagine the kind of welcome that Philemon would have laid on for Paul. He'd welcome him with more pomp and circumstance than we got together for the bishop last week. Paul the apostle, in your own home, you bring out the fine china for that one. And Paul is now asking him to do that for a runaway slave. I can't help but think of the return of the prodigal son. A disobedient and practically thieving son comes home and the father kills the fatted calf, throws a huge party and welcomes the boy back with a kiss and a ring. And the elder brother stands to the side saying, what on earth are you doing? That is exactly how someone in Philemon's house might have reacted when Onesimus came home. This man is your slave. He stole from you. And you're treating him, you're treating him like Paul. Like an honored guest. Like a brother. And just by the way, it's almost certain that Philemon did do as Paul asked. Welcoming Onesimus home as a brother in Christ. An attitude shift which eventually led to Philemon setting Onesimus free. That's what Paul is intimating at the end of the letter when he says to Philemon, Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul knows that the leaven of the gospel will be at work in Philemon, just as it will be in the whole world. And that by necessity, slaves will be set free. Now, one possible proof of this is that there is, around 50 years after Philemon is written, a letter written by the church father Ignatius to the church at Ephesus. And this letter is partially addressed to a bishop named Onesimus. Now, it's quite possible that this is the same man a freed slave and forgiven thief, now an overseer in Christ's church. Some interpreters have seen allusions in Ignatius's letter to Philemon, which would make it even more sure. But even if that's coincidence and it's not the same man, we have another piece of evidence that Philemon did just as Paul asked. This short personal letter is in our Bibles. This suggests that Philemon received the letter, kept it, treasured it, shared it with other Christians and churches, something that he surely would not have done if he disobeyed Paul's instructions. No, Philemon kept this letter as a document of the revolutionary power of the gospel. And here is that gospel, the good news that Paul is sharing with Philemon. First, it is the good news that all who are in Christ are equal in the eyes of God. 
We who were once one in our sin are now one in our salvation. There is truly neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Second, it is the good news that we have been ransomed like Paul pledges to do for Onesimus and reset into the family of God. We are no longer outsiders, but beloved children, co-heirs with Christ of all of God's blessings. It is the good news that we, the criminal runaways, have someone ready to take onto himself the penalty that we have rightly earned. Paul assures Philemon that he, the apostle, will bear any debt that Onesimus owes. Paul is making himself a substitute, atoning for Onesimus' sins, becoming a sign of what Christ has done for the world. Indeed, Paul takes this role so seriously that he actually, at this point, reaches over and takes the pen away from his scribe and signs the IOU with his own hand. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. How does Paul accomplish the freeing of Onesimus? By reminding Philemon of his own freedom, bought and paid for by Christ. And this is how we too become the people God is calling us to be. The kind of people who welcome others like brothers. Who work toward freedom and justice. Who love even our enemies. We become these people by reminding ourselves that in Christ... We have been made into those people by reminding ourselves of the person, the man, Jesus, God incarnate, who was called by God to give his life for us. We remind ourselves by gathering for worship and by immersing ourselves in God's word. We remind ourselves by confessing our sins and by hearing God's absolution in Jesus' name. We remind ourselves by reaffirming our faith in the creed and by tasting once again the feast that God has prepared for us, Christ's body and blood broken and shed for sinners. Paul asks Philemon to look at Onesimus in a completely new light. As a new creation. Because that's exactly what has happened. On account of Christ, Onesimus has been made new. And Paul can ask this of Philemon. Because Jesus did just this for Philemon. And for Onesimus. And for Paul. And I am compelled to say for me. And for you. You are the runaway. You are the criminal. But you have a benefactor, an advocate, 
a substitute. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has signed your IOU, yes, even yours, with his own flesh and blood. This good news, news that you will receive, keep, treasure, and share, this gospel is true for you today and always. Amen.